As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Steve Pagliuca, we're thrilled he could join us now. Senior advisor, Bank Capital, not an acquaintance with the only franchise in basketball, Boston Celtics as well. And most importantly, with Jim Zelter, who we spoke to yesterday, the cardinal rule is you can't do fixed income, you can't do debt if you went to Duke University. You got to go to Duke or you can't do this. Steve, what was in the air at Duke University that got you and Zelter into the debt game? Well, I'm not really the debt game. I'm in the private equity business. Yeah, and, you I know. know. Same actually, thing. I actually borrow a lot, but uh, Duke's a fantastic place. I'm, I'm on the board today, and uh, it's, uh, it, it's just a, a great environment and a great learning environment and doing great things. This moment right now, the jumble that we're in, the day-to-day grind that Bloomberg Surveillance does, give us the vision you have out one year on the application of all that money in private equity, what are people like you going to do? Well, I think you got to step back, and 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 we're, we're really seeing. Uh, I think as you've talked about today, uh, the unwinding of quantitative easing, and and we're back to more normalized interest rates. If if we look back at my career in the last forty years, you know, thirty of those years we had interest rates, T bills were four and a half, five percent. It's only as of the crisis that we've had this very cheap money. And now that's being kind of unwind, you know, due to the fact when you increase the money supply so much and have so low interest rates, you get speculative behavior and you get inflation. And so now we're, we're in for probably a, te- probably a 10-year cycle of, of going back to what I'll call normalized interest rates. In the process of that, I'm curious about the phases of private equity, the phases of taking a company and building it and then uh, cashing in and spinning it off in an IPO. Is it getting harder to cash in and more important to do the due diligence of building up right now at a time when the IPO market hasn't fully recovered? Well, private equity hasn't hasn't through, it, it totally relied on the IPO market and the IPO markets are very slow right now. Um, you know, I, if, if I step back, I'd say the private equity model, since I've, I've been doing it for, I think, 35 years now, has been a very durable, successful model in, in bad times and good times. Because fundamentally, what private equity is trying to do is inject capital in businesses and, and, and then grow them. It's a misnomer, I think, starting maybe back to the dark days of private equity, that it was just about taking costs out. The really successful private equity companies have driven a growth in, in, in te- the technology sector, the medical sector, industrial sector, um, globalized companies, and, and the model has really worked well. 
Um, so again, when, when I started out, interest rates were, we were borrowing money at 11 or 12%. Um, so you're seeing corrections in prices now and you're, and you're, you're still able, we're still able to finance companies. We're still able to grow companies. You just have to become more selective and, and, and more fundamental in the, in the, in the, and now is what a more fundamental market versus the speculative market that was created by the, by the, the, the vast increase in the money supply. Over the past decade, a lot of people have talked about private equity and private investment firms in general taking market share from the bigger banks. And we were speaking with Apollo about the potential acquisition of a Credit Suisse arm. Do you see that increase in taking uh, market share? Do you see that likely to continue over the next few years? I, I do. Uh, you know, when they when they broke Glass-Steagall and changed all the rules, the banks have had to be much more conservative and, and banks used to be merchant banks and now they're really just banks and pri large private equity firms are becoming more like the merchant banks of the old and, and branching out into into debt services branching out into uh, uh selling and buying of companies and so so i think those those private mm -hmm. equity firms will continue to go on that direction on bloomberg radio and bloomberg television stephen pegluka with us right now of course owner of the boston celtics we'll get the sport here in a moment and all the different rumors out there, but we stay on Global Wall Street. Steve, I love what you say about the merchant banks have become regular banks. Whether it's Goldman Sachs or, frankly, every other bank, there's a competitive effort to keep the spirit going. Some would say Mr. Solomon at Goldman Sachs has stumbled. Did he overreach by doing something that culturally didn't fit Goldman Sachs when he and others invented Marcus and consumer banking efforts? Well, I think I think I think the the you know nobody can get it perfectly. Um, I think they identified that the wealth management market was a great market, um, and part of the issue is is we've we've seen this great change in interest rates right now, and which made that a tougher strategy. Um, but Goldman has a very good name and a very good reputation, and and I'm sure they'll they'll sort that out and, and be a factor in the money management business because they have the core skills to do that. Steve, you're just barely old enough to remember when dire straits took over the zeitgeist with money for nothing. And as you mentioned in your last answer, all of a sudden money costs something. The dire straits rate structure is so over. How does the private equity market change? To speak to the young Turks now in private equity. How does their world change now that money costs something? Well, I think the world changes in, in, in that um there was a in the last five to ten years, as we've talked, there was a speculative bubble where people people believed that everything could be Amazon, that uh, the weight of money and putting money into uh, growth capital companies uh, would would gain share, and you could lose you could lose money um, for a long period of time. When money is cheap, you probably can do that, and there were successful investments like Uber and and uh, and um, Amazon. But for every one of those. There's been a lot of ones that are just uh, will never achieve the potential. And when you change interest rates, the value plummets. And you've seen that now in the tech market. So uh, I think we're going to go back to the future. When I started, interest rates were, you know, T-bills were 5%. And as I told you, we were borrowing at 10 and 11% and we were very successful. But you have to kind of go back to fundamentals and have companies that gain share and, and become profitable um, because you can't take the strategy of, of, of losing money for, for five to 10 to 15 years to then create a great business at the end. It doesn't work in a world where, where money costs something. 
Over the past decade, Steve, we were talking about companies that would borrow money to pay their stockholders, right? There was a lot of discussion around that, and it seemed like uh, the debt side was less valuable than the equity side in many ways because you would get rewarded by the bond side even in the equity space. Has that balance shifted? Do you see a greater opportunity on the bond side now and the credit side of the companies that you invest in than the equity, or is it just more balanced? It's more balanced. Um there's always going to be uh, uh, bigger returns where, where you you, have, you create more alpha in equity by driving and and, and increasing companies' market share and profits. Uh, but I would say we are entering kind of a golden age of credit, uh, where where now credit is being appropriately priced and people are getting great returns on that credit. And uh, and and it's 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 really I wouldn't even say it's expensive. It's it's more of a normal cycle behavior now. Um, you know, we, we looked at this at Bain Capital, the, the, all economies where the money supply increased kind of 50 percent or more, which is what, what's happened in most of the Western world. Uh, after a period of time, you see large inflation yeah. and it's got to be corrected and it's got to go back to kind of where, where, where the cost of capital is more normalized. And that's what we're seeing right now. That's going to be a 10 year trend. Stephen, on the Super Bowl weekend, it's just wonderful that you've agreed to stay with us in our next segment, folks. This will be really most, most interesting. I want to touch on sports here. I think of Malcolm Glazier, what he did out of Rochester, New York, buying the Tampa Bay Buccaneers years ago. That was an entrepreneurial guy, starting with his father with next to nothing, who made it big in sports. The illusion today is, or the reality, I should say, is there's the haves and have-nots of sports, of big, big, big money, whether it's petrodollar money or American tycoon money taking over sports. How do you adapt and adjust to that to do the social good of what a domestic economy wants? Let's take English football. How do the big guys come into English football, like the Saudis in Newcastle, and yet support the domestic people of the United Kingdom? Well, that's a that's a long, uh, you know, complicated answer. Um, I, I I have experience uh, having been the owner of Atalanta in Italy, and sports can actually be a fantastic um, uh, change for social good. Um, in terms of specifically uh, the structure of of soccer in in or what they call football in Europe, it is much more grassroots. It's much more um, teams can kind of kind of come up and down. And I think what these new owners have to do is recognize their community asset. And both try to win, but share the spoils with the teams uh, on the on the bottom. And you're, I, I think yeah. the UK just came out with a, a large regulatory report in terms of reforming the system, where more money will go to the smaller teams so they can feed the larger teams. Mm -hmm. And then, and then, secondly, what's been great about the USA as a, as a leading model is is the NBA has NBA Cares, the Boston Celtics. We formed the Boston Celtics United for Social Justice and the Boston Celtics Shamrock Foundation. And we've given millions of dollars back to the community well, and worked with the community and had our players go out and they, uh, go out there as well. So, so uh, sports franchises can, can be uh, a real impact for, for for social good. And then specifically in, in the question on on the European leagues, it, it is different than the U.S. It's a grassroots basis. Yes, and they're looking at the at, at the rules and regulations to 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 really make it. Uh, be more fair okay. and really support those those teams. We're talking to Steve Pagliuca right now, of course, with Bain Capital and co-owner of the Boston Celtics. Lisa Bramwitz and Tom Keene doing a little bit of a wonderful sports vampire. We'll do this right now uh, with Steve. And with that, we need to bring in someone encyclopedic on Pag's Boston Celtics, which, of course, uh, for me, always Michael McKee is the romance of Mr. Arbach and an absolutely original floor and Bob Cousy and what 
Uh, he did long ago and far away, but you are way up to speed on the new Celtics. <laughs> a couple piercing questions here for Steve right now. Well, well let's just do, get this out of the way uh, and uh, and ask you about yesterday. Uh, Mike Muscala coming to uh, the Celtics. Uh, you guys didn't do much beyond that, and there was sort of an expectation you might uh, package some of the players or draft picks and, and pick up some of the stars that have been floating around. You're satisfied uh, just being the best team in the NBA right now. Now, I guess. <laughs> well, we have a great uh, group of players, uh, uh, high character, probably one of the tightest groups we've had in the 20 years that, that, that we've been involved with the Celtics um, and made it to the almost won the NBA finals last year. We added Malcolm Brogdon, who's been a major plus. Um, so so uh, that group is, is leading the NBA right now. And and now we've got some more help with Mike Muscala and excited about him. So I think we're in pretty pretty good position. Um, as long as we stay healthy, we're in pretty good position for the rest of the season. A very quick question here, just because everybody wants to know. Jalen Brown, how long is he out? You know, he's still being evaluated. Um, hopefully hopefully he'll be back uh, in, in, in a few weeks. And uh, you know, we, we basically won't, won't put players out there if they can be injured. So the doctors are, are looking at the best course of action. But he'll, he'll be back at some point soon. I got to ask this question. Um, Matt Ishiba walks out of the Board of Governors meeting, shaking hands, new owner of the Phoenix Suns, and a couple hours later, mortgages that franchise to get Kevin Durant. Uh, is is that the kind of move that is good for the NBA? I think it's exciting. Uh, you can see it's caused a, a national stir. It's created a powerhouse out in, out in Phoenix. Um, the issue in, in the balancing act that you always have to do as a, as a sports franchise owner is the long-term versus the short-term. And it sounds like, you know, Matt has a philosophy that they have a team that's on the cusp and adding a star like Kevin Durant is worth it to mortgage the future. And we'll see, we'll see how that, how that pans out. Steve, I got to turn to all the rumors that are out there and drive the uh, conversation forward. And of course, been briefed by Jonathan Farrow, who tr truly brings real expertise here. There is an American interest in the Premier League, which I'm speaking as an amateur, is the best run league in the world or the most effective league in the world. It seems like every Saturday is a World Cup on NBC. And I'm looking at Manchester United and all the turmoil there. I'm looking at the new ownership of Chelsea. As you look as rumored to Liverpool, what did you learn from the Chelsea Ballet? What did you learn in the last number of months about how a guy like you from Bain approaches the Premier League of the United Kingdom? Learned a lot. It was a great learning experience, and it is a fantastic league. Um, as, as you know, I'm the co-owner and chairman of, of Atalanta, which is in Serie A, which is a, a fantastic league as well. Um, so we've learned a lot from that um, and the Premier League. Uh, I think the Premier League uh, has very high values uh, because it's a, it's a fantastic product. Uh, the, the television revenues are high. It attracts great players. Um, now, the, the, the Chelsea situation, uh, the price was really a very, very full price. And I think that's motivated some other teams, as you've seen, to, to, to try and sell. Um, and I don't know if, if, if that, that value is going to be justified for, for all the other teams. Long-term sports is a great investment because you've seen it go up year after year after year. It's the only uh, property on television that is, is must-see TV. And as, as the whole TV market has changed from um, linear to digital mm -hmm. and now bundling and unbundling and streaming, uh, these sports products have become even more valuable. So there's a bright future right. ahead. 
Uh, Steve, a viewer question. John from Milan emails in and says, can Atalanta, can they, can they really do better than AC Milan through the rest of the season? Your thoughts on that, please. Uh, we're very excited about Atalanta. The, the Bacassi uh, family and the scouts have done a fantastic job bringing in a lot of young players who are very heralded. We have the second leading goal scorer uh, in, in Serie A, in, in Lookman, uh, Adamola Lookman. Uh, and, and Hoyland is a young, now now just turned 20 uh, player that's that's making an impact as well. So hopefully we can be better, very competitive and be at the top of the league. We have a big game on on this weekend, and hopefully we'll win that one. You know, I feel like, Elisa, it's like when uh, the, um, the manager in baseball is banished from the dugout and they're calling on the phone to tell what the plays are. Farrell's in my ear. Yeah, like, Ask, about right. yeah, exactly. Ask about AC Milan. Ask about AC Milan. You're going to bid on them? Make them better? <laughs> uh, no, I want to just build on what you were saying, Steve, this idea that sports uh, products are really attractive to you and that the asset class is growing. And I'm curious what the analog is in terms of owning a sports team, whether it's for the revenues, whether it's it's for the advertising, whether it's for the social presence, and how you evaluate that. What kinds of investors are appropriate for this area? Well, you've seen a massive increases in, in um, um, sports franchise values ac across the board. Uh, and, and really, that's because they hold value and because the, 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 the promise of television revenues and, and, and basically branding uh, has been fulfilled over a long period of time. They, they've created large fan bases. Technology has really changed everything. It's globalized these sports, sports franchises. So when you know we were growing up, you really couldn't see a, 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 a soccer game in in London. Uh, now you can see it all over the world. And uh, the big sports teams, including the NBA and 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 soccer, which are both global sports, are now counting fans in the hundreds of millions rather than in the in, in the millions. Um, and you can use that brand power to, to monetize it for the sports clubs. Secondly, there is a, a uh, almost Picasso painting-like aspect of this. It's a, it's a, there are only uh, 30 pro teams in every sport in the U.S., and there's four or five big leagues. So it's a very scarce asset globally. Uh, yeah. Franchises, like, companies like Chelsea, clubs like Chelsea are very unique in the middle of, of London there. And, and so there is an uh, intrinsic scarcity value plus – uh, an economic value of, of 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 the properties because of the television revenues and 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 the central role that they play in attracting viewers in the larger competition as you see YouTube, Apple, and other tech companies now encroaching on on the uh, broadcast space. Just real quick here, Steve, I'm curious whether Middle East money has pushed out other bidders right now from the London clubs. Uh, you're seeing institutional capital come in, and and with these kind of values, it's that that is that is going to happen, um, and they have strategic interest in, in I think building the brands of, of, of those countries, um, right. and so and so they're just another another factor, another factor, right. another source of capital. Steve, I got to ask one more delicate question here, and I say it with great respect for the way you've done sports. There's a massive uproar about Man City. I was making jokes the other day. It was far more serious than anything we saw with the Houston Astros. How do guys like you help with the arms race and the outcomes that are alleged at Manchester City? Well, I'm not involved in the, in the primarily, but but if I step back in general, um, I think a, a good model of the NBA where where Adam Silver and previously Tim David Stern have done a fantastic job in enforcing 
you know, fair play rules and, mm-hmm. and making sure everybody has a level competitive field. And, uh, and, and that's really the way to do it. And, and I, I applaud the Premier League and, and, uh, and, and Serie A for doing the same thing and, and, and really enforcing uh, everybody playing by the rules. Because at the end of the day, um, no one wants to have unfair competition or watch unfair competition or have people who are, who are bending the rules or violating the rules succeed. Right. And that's fundamental to fairness in sports. Right. Steve, I got all of 10 seconds. Eagles or Chiefs? Uh, I love Mahomes, so I say Chiefs. Very good. Steve Vex, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with Bain Capital and with the Boston Celtics. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Let's get to Asselin, your global head of FX strategy over at RBC. Asselin, can we just start there briefly? The next BOJ head, your thoughts on the recent reports that have come through all of this morning. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's been an interesting trade for many since the YCC band was widened in December. Got to be honest, feels like people have overtraded it a little bit. You know, keep getting excited about who it might be, what that might lead to in terms of uh, movement. But as you say, the Bank of Japan moves very slowly. And so I think traders right now weighing up their options. We saw that kind of overbaking of the move. It went dollar yen down, back up again, and now pretty much, I'd say, close to flat. Uh, Elsa, your your academics in mine is simple. There's disinflation, there's deflation, there's inflation, and then there's a cosmic undefinability of reflation. Mr. Kuroda is doing the ultimate reflation experiment. How's it going? I mean, honestly speaking, it's been a long time and it's hard to see tangible effects. Yes, there is inflation right now in Japan, but we've seen it across the world, global supply chain issues, commodity price effects. And what we see when that fades away is the underlying core inflationary dynamic, which is stronger in some countries than it is in others. And I've got to be honest, I find it hard to imagine a world where the US is in disinflation as we're pricing at the moment, and Japan is seeing aggressive inflation that would require much higher rates. It just, it's not a world that adds up. So you're basically pushing back against the idea that perhaps next Tuesday is going to be rather explosive because we get both CPI and then we also get the Bank of Japan nominee and some notes overnight were saying this is going to be explosive, especially for all the pain trade and people that are positioned in different ways. You disagree with that. Is that correct? 
Look, I think CPI is going to be interesting. There's obviously a huge focus on spot CPI in the U.S. at the moment. The Bank of Japan governor, perhaps <clears throat> less so. You know, for me, the big change going on at the moment is not what's happening in Japan, but what's happened in the rest of the world. The increase in hedging costs for Japanese investors. Mm-hmm. I know we've discussed it before. That's not gone away. And even if the Fed were to be cutting in the back half of the year, it'll still be very expensive for your average Japanese investor. That's the C change, not the YCC. Elsa, how does your world change if we now have where money costs something? Cash has value. The one-year treasury bill is out where it, it is. How does that change the foreign exchange world where you can advantageously profit from it? I think that's a great question, Tom, because... We're kind of in an environment where vol seems to be falling across the board. You see it in equity markets and fixed income markets, um, a little bit more mixed in FX. But it's an environment that is actually conducive to considering not just rate dynamics, but also the level of rates, you know, static yield. And in that context, it's very difficult to imagine we're going to see the dollar collapse, like I think a lot of people are forecasting, if it remains the highest yielder in G10. You know, it does matter when cash costs something. It costs something to short the currency. You earn something for just holding on to it. It does mean that holding on to a short dollar yen position, unless we see a dramatic fall in interest rates, it's just not going to pay off. Also, just quickly, I just want to finish on Europe, the euro and what's taking place in the energy patch today with crude rallying. There's a piece in the Financial Times this morning morning and it's on Pierre Anderand who I'm sure everyone is aware of the commodity trader runs a commodity hedge fund he says Putin has lost the energy war do you agree with that is that your working assumption for 2023 given what we're seeing play out this morning it's interesting because you actually mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act earlier and in one of the discussions they're having at the European Council today is what the response is going to be The reality is that structurally cheap gas that Europe used to get is no longer there. And that might not benefit Putin, but it certainly will benefit the US in relative terms. So going forward, this is not a three-month or six-month trade, but if you look at it on a two- to three-year horizon, there are big incentives for European companies to be investing in the US. Interesting. Elsa, thank you. As always, Elsa Linios there of RBC. Thank you very much. Gregory Staples joins us now, head of fixed income North America at DWS Group. And with a very trenchant note that takes us back to a previous speaker, John Williams, you say this R-star discussion has serious merit and you really extend out your view because of the, the neutral rate mystery that we have in 2023. That's right, Tom. And I'll tell you, it seems like a lot of the dialogue right now is really over whether the peak rate in the next six months is 480 to 505 and so forth. And I'm not sure it matters that much whether they did one hike or two hikes. I think the Fed is pushing back against an amplitude higher than that. I think what they're really trying to emphasize in the Fed speak that we're hearing, we heard it from Williams this week, we heard it from Waller, is they want to emphasize the duration of it, not interest rate sensitivity, but how long they're going to stay at that peak rate, whatever number it is. They're pushing back hard against the concept of a pivot, the idea that the they're going to have to ease in July or August, and I, I think they want to make that true, and I think that's what the market's listening to right now, and that's why you're seeing two years at 4.5%. Long term for the financial media is maybe three months. What you're suggesting is you've got to extend out your view. Away from the consensus call, what does DWS suggest you do if you're extending out the Fed dynamics? Very much our clients are long-term investors. We're not looking for the next tick in the tenure, and so what we're looking at is not – what we'd call terminal peak, we're looking at terminal floor. Where are we in the end of 2024? What level does the Fed get down to 
and stop. What and the level is that? Well, it was three. The market was talking about through three percent as recently as a week ago, and with the uh, unemployment number now, they've pushed that up maybe to three, three and a quarter. We think it's actually probably more like three and a half, and then you layer in a seventy-five basis point twos tens, and you're talking about a ten-year that's appropriately more four, four and a quarter. Okay, well, that's exactly where I wanted to go because this is really one of the biggest shifts that I've seen in the past couple of weeks. Every guest coming on and saying duration's been overbid, and perhaps you want to fade that a little bit, and you're seeing that on the margins. We've got Deutsche Bank on the end private bank uh, side, coming out with a 4.2% 10-year yield on that treasury. You think it's the same. What's the path to get there? Is it sudden or is it gradual? I think it's gradual. I think uh, a lot of it is actually really, if you're a leveraged 10-year player and you're buying the, the current 10-year, it was 450, now 470, and you're going to be financing that at the SOFA rate, which is going to be 480 after the March meeting, that's negative carry for a persistent period of time. You can do that if you believe that the 10-year rate is going to go down very quickly and you can get that negative carry back in price appreciation. But if you're looking at several months of holding on to that negative carry instrument, it only makes sense if you see the tenure moving up to 4% at a minimum. What does that mean for riskier credit? What does that mean for safer credit? What does that mean for all of these instruments that have been priced off some sort of stability in yields that might not be so stable? Well, from one perspective, at least, we're seeing volatility come in a, a lot. A, the 2022 10-year range was 270 basis points. In 2023, we think it's probably more like 75. You know, I think three and a quarter to four percent is the range. So volatility coming down has always been supportive of risk assets. That being said, we've had a very strong rally in January, probably gone a little bit too far. Coming from two things, I think its portfolio managers were underpositioned in risk at year end. Plus, we're seeing more economic strength than we expected. The market was expecting a recession to start as soon as January, and it's clear the data is coming in and saying. No, we're actually having a pretty decent January. There's a philosophical question, though, when you start talking about a terminal rate around 3.5% for a prolonged period of time, of the fate of companies that grew up in an era of free money and rationalization around their business model at a time when people still expect default rates to remain so low. Do you think that people are underestimating the level of defaults, not necessarily later this year, but next year, the year after, if interest rates remain at the place where you expect them to be? I'm not sure an additional 100 to 200 basis points is really going to crush some some business models. Um, Remember, this is the way things were for much of history until we got to the great financial crisis of 2009, 2010. Overall, we're actually still still pretty sanguine around credit, and that's one of the reasons why we think the economy has done so well so far. Corporate balance sheets still have some decent cash. Any treasurer who didn't foresee this recession ought to be taken out and shot because it's been so well advanced. I mean, seriously, we've been talking recession for, what, six months now? And if you haven't battened down the hatches, you should be out of your job, quite frankly. Let's not take it that far, Greg. Let's rip up the script right now because Mr. Staples with his decades of experience. Do they, do they teach you about the firing squad in this? Yeah, they, they do. Yeah. I've been there. But this is really important, and I allude to this when I ask guys like you about issuance. What's the lemmings over the cliff attitude now of CFOs in a meeting and they've got to restructure either heavily debted, lightly indebted. What? Forget about Warner Brothers Discovery, which is a train wreck. What do CFOs do here as lemmings over the cliff right now? I'll tell you what, right now, the, the, the window is still open for issuance. I know prices are still high. Exactly. But they should be taking advantage of the market right now. High, the high-yield market, we did $8 billion this week of issuance. That was a market that was shut down. I think our audience doesn't understand this. And the idea is the stuff is actually issued out. What's the dynamic now on issuance of credit dynamic and duration dynamic? There's there's an incredible bid. Retail money is flowing into high yield. Institutional money is flowing into high yield. Again, I think it's a repositioning from being way short 
at year end, but that window yeah. can shut fairly quickly. It was a buyer's market and no one wanted to sell. They're selling now. Are you seeing the leverage start to move? Just in terms of who's got the leverage, the buyers or the sellers right Absolutely, now. absolutely. We're seeing, obviously, deals come price 20, 30 basis points through initial price stock allocated at 15 or 20 percent, and then they're breaking five or 10 tighter at the break. This is a credit market that's almost a little bit frothy. Wow. That's a massive change in the last month or so. Huge. So when we started this year and everyone said, let's go, let's get ready, juicy yields, where are we a month later? Same story, or has it changed much? Well, I think people are still looking for 5% yields in the investment grade space, obviously more like 7 or 8 in high yield. So there's still a bid for it. But you, you, were, you were the people who raised lemmings, I think. You could, you could completely <laughs> do a 180-degree turn if you see an S&P go down 5 or 10%. Do you think this speaks to the rate cut story, that people see this as a, a once-in-a-generation a once opportunity to get 5 and just hold on to it for a number of years. Does it speak to that? They just don't think this high rate regime is going to last. I think for a lot of investors, that's true. And I think actually 5% longer term is, is a pretty good yield. It disappeared probably two weeks ago. Now it's coming back with the backup in the tenure. But it looks pretty attractive long term. I have to think that's that's true. Fascinating. Greg Staples, thank you. Of DWS Group, just bringing the bond market a lifetime. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Emily Rowland joins us, co-chief investment strategist at John Hancock Investment. Are you going to rewrite this weekend, Emily, or do you have to wait till Tuesday, 8.31 a.m. to do the rewrite? I feel like I should have some good Valentine's Day puns ready for the inflation print on Tuesday. So come back to me on that one. But it is going to be really critical. And this week, it feels like there's been a big shift in the mood music, as, as you would say, Tom. And we've had higher bond yields. We've had oil prices rising, and most importantly, the dollar strengthening. You know, you think about these moves in currency, the dollar has been at the epicenter of every move in the markets, the weaker dollar trend that started in the fourth quarter, really spurring this risk on rally. <clears throat> and over the last week, that narrative has changed a bit here. So we think that that's going to be really critical to watch. Mm -hmm. Inflation is going to be huge on Tuesday in, in terms of the way it impacts bond yields from here. You look at corporate earnings differently, but the basic idea here of corporate earnings and the resiliency forward, is it there? By the way, I want to make a comment on what John just said about earnings. It is amazing that some of the huge earnings misses of some of the world's largest companies like hasn't even been a big story. Um, over the last few weeks, this has been an entirely macro-driven market. So when we look at earnings underneath the hood, yeah, negative 5%, 70% of companies having now reported for the fourth quarter, it's okay. 
But some of the themes are really critical. You know, revenue growth was the major driver of earnings. It sort of saved the day for earnings in 2022. But now we're hearing more about margin pressure. We're hearing about companies dealing with that uh, via layoffs. You know, buybacks are sort of back in the narrative. So, you know, we think this is going to be a tough environment for companies going forward. Costs are elevated, especially the cost of capital having risen a lot. That is yet to be absorbed. And top line growth slowing meaningfully as consumers start to retrench. Companies have too much stuff. We think there's going to be a major war on margins in 2023. So, Emily, what explains the rally year to date? And do you think we all run the risk of assigning some kind of fundamental narrative to a story that doesn't deserve one? It's just so hard. It's not based on fundamentals. It's so hard to identify. And you all have been talking a lot about Europe this morning. It's like, you know, I think about it before higher inflation seemed good for Europe because it was better for the euro and better for European businesses. Then we get this miss on German inflation and that's good for Europe. You know, stocks are reacting positively either way. It's sort of this odd win-win situation that's hard to pin down. And there could be an element here of a technical rally, positioning changes, you know, investors realizing that they didn't own enough Europe, they're short covering and now sentiments taken hold, momentum's taken hold, and a lot of investors moving to that part of the market. You know, we haven't fully embraced that trade, admittedly. Um, we've been overweight domestic equities like your previous guest. And that's the reason for that is because it's just a higher quality market, better earnings, more companies with great balance sheets, lots of cash on their balance sheets, a limited need to tap the capital markets in order to grow. That's where we want to be positioned in this environment. Coming into 2023, Emily, a lot of people were saying this is going to be the year of active management. We've been hearing about that a lot. I'm wondering about the messaging around an active portfolio, about whether this is about avoiding losses or about whether this is delivering outsized gains and what that tells us about where the sentiment on the risk reward continuum really has shifted. Yeah, to us, it's all about risk management and this environment. And it's amazing to see the kind of re-emergence of the risk on trade, whether it's, you know, small cap equities, cyclical stocks in Europe, you know, waking up in the morning and hearing the headlines around mean stocks rallying again. you got to think to yourself, oh, my gosh, we're doing this again. <laughs> uh, you know, so investors are really moving back in this direction of, of taking risk. And there's always a sort of celebration of, of the Fed pivot or this idea that the inflation is is receding and the, and the Fed can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel in order to pause. And, and that's really kind of emblematic of every cycle. You sort of see this play out again and again, where soft landing hopes get priced in and then ultimately they're dashed. And, and, and unfortunately, we think that is the narrative this time is the lagged impact of central bank tightening globally is going to start to bite here. So we would be careful about reaching for the riskier corners or pockets of the market here, and we would be redeploying assets in higher quality, more defensive areas. Interesting. And Emily, bonds. Have we you love got a, bonds. Have you got a Super Bowl pick for Sunday? I don't know what I'm doing. Oh my gosh, I don't, but I have really good squares. So I'm excited. I got all the zeros and threes. Yeah, I'm psyched. Do you know what she's no saying? Twos, what does that mean? Okay, no eight. The brackets. Emily, oh. what, what you need to know is, is John Hancock has two skyscrapers. There's new John Hancock <laughs> right. and old John Hancock. Okay. Everybody working in old John Hancock has no clue what they're talking about. And in new John Hancock's where all the young hip people like Emily are. They know what they do. And they do these betting pools where it's a sheet of paper okay. and it's squares, you know, and, you and then you bet. And they okay. all vary a little bit, but it's like, where are we at the end of the first quarter? Where are we at the end of the oh, game? Right. They're all very little bit. 
and you put up, you know, a small amount of money. Like, like Emily's popping, what, $1,000 per square? <laughs> it's probably I think she's, you I think know, someone like in the office did that last year. I think yeah. I still owe them $10. So how much was it? It was 100 bucks a square. Oh, my goodness. Oh my goodness. Big time. Yeah. It's for charity, though. It's oh, for, it's yeah. my son's youth. It's for youth. Nice, nice, nice compliance save, Emily. <laughs> Emily Ryland at John Hancock Investment Management. <laughs> Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app. Tune in and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.